One entrance to Hades, the most important entrance to Hades in, um, for the Athenians was in a place called Elephsis. Okay. Which is um, about 15 miles away from Athens, most important ritual site. And that was the entrance to the underworld. And that was, it was out of there that Persephone returned. Is it a cave? It's a, a kind of a hole <laughs> of a well. There's a well that goes down to Hades. And it's even stranger than that. There's a well that goes down to Hades, and that's where um, Persephone's mother, Demeter, sat and wept. And uh, she begged uh, Hades or Pluto, and the two names are used interchangeably. And the place where the entrance to Hades is, is located is called the Plutonium. The Plutonium. They would have reenacted theatrically the return of Persephone out of Hades back into the light every, um, every year. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Well into her 90s, my grandma Selma and I had this running conversation about the state of the world. She'd escaped Polish pogroms as a five-year-old, lived through the loss of half her relatives in World War II, and saw the founding of the UN in 1945 and NATO in 1949, as signs of a world sick of chaos and finally ready to be sensible and humane. Well, that's not really how things turned out, is it? <laughs> and I spent a lot of time trying and failing to reassure Selma that there was still hope in the world, albeit on a smaller, more localized scale. But what if the real problem isn't the world, but our obsessive tendency to systematize and sanitize it? My guest today, philosopher Simon Critchley, looks to the form of tragedy in theater, from ancient Greece to Shakespeare, and maybe also to Breaking Bad, as a possible antidote. In his new book, Tragedy, the Greeks and Us, he shows us how tragedy works, why Plato was scared of it, and how it answers the kind of deflated idealism my grandma Selma was dealing with. Welcome to Think Again, Simon. Thank you very much, Jason. So you're saying that tragedy is about bringing us face to face with ambiguity. Yeah, moral ambiguity. To give you a couple of examples, the and often that moral ambiguity would turn around one word, uh, a word like law right. or justice, and um, there will be a, a conflict around the meaning of that one word. So the Antigone, which is for many people the play that they perhaps know best of the ancient tragedies, that word is law, nomos. Antigone says it means one thing. Crayon, leader of the city, says it means another thing. And the play is the the conflict between those two meanings of the same word. And we're not told who's right, right. and who's wrong. We watch these two, these two interpretations of the law batter into each other, destroy each other, and um, everybody dies. <laughs> and, uh, and the other one is, is uh, the Oresteia, which is the trilogy, the most famous, the only extant trilogy of tragedies that we have from, I think, 458 BC. And the word there is justice. And uh, what does justice mean? And we're given, again, two different meanings of the word justice. Right. And they're shown to batter against each other and collide. And then we end up in, in that play in a law court where justice is attempting to be negotiated. So what we're confronted with in ancient tragedy, and I think what, why, one of the reasons why it's so important, is the fact of moral ambiguity. You repeatedly point out in the book, repeatedly but not repetitively, that skepticism is sort of the result of this, or, or both the motive and the result, that in a sense we're left with a skeptical as opposed to, say, an idealistic mm -hmm. view of the world. 
how is skepticism different from cynicism? But cynicism is the link to the school of the cynics that develop in the generation immediately after Socrates in the fourth century BC. The most famous of them is Diogenes the cynic. And they're called cynics because um, these were kind of street people, these kind of street street philosophers, the cynics. And they um, they did what they liked. They walked around naked. Diogenes used to masturbate in public to show that pleasure could be had at any time, <laughs> wow. things like that. And he was also the person who was most admired by Alexander the Great. So Alexander the Great finally subdued the entirety of Greece under Macedonian rule when he went to his other Thebes or Athens. He met Diogenes and Alexander said, uh, do you have any anything to say to me? He says, yeah, get out of my light. <laughs> you're blocking, you're blocking my, you're blocking my sun. And so the cynics were like that. They were kind of... So they're sort of punks in a way yeah, or something. Yeah, they're kind of punk street philosophers <laughs> yeah. who were... And also where we get the, the origins of the idea of cosmopolitanism, right? That mm. we have this idea of cosmopolitanism as being this very kind of, I don't know, trendy, nice thing that we all should get along and live in an international community of whatever. Whereas Diogenes says, I am cosmopolites. I'm a citizen of the world, not a citizen of the city. Huh. So for... Cynicism originally is, is anti-political. Given that one's political identity was defined through the city, Diogenes rejects the city. Individualistic as opposed it, it's to It's an individualistic, anarchic commitment to an absolute freedom of speech. Now, skepticism you, is something else. Now, you point out something in the book, though, that which is that you know the origins of words and sort of where they end up are often different things, right? Yes. And cynicism as... I don't know, is casually understood now, like outs outside of the divorced, mm -hmm. fortunately or unfortunately, from the historical context. Mm -hmm. I, by that, I mean looking at reality and saying, okay, well, this is what it is. It's a big blah mess. It's mm -hmm. just a bunch of fragments and there's never anything that anyone can do about it, right? And mm -hmm. But that's not the effect that you're claiming for tragedy. That's not the philosophy of tragedy. No, no, not at all, you, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, tragedy is earlier. And tragedy, I mean, it's the, the interesting thing to figure out, the interesting thing to, to ponder on, is that the, um, the Athenians invent a few things. But one thing that they invent, it begins in the 6th century, but really takes shape properly in the 5th century, is this new form of government. And this new form of government that's based upon an idea of equality of all citizens. Okay. And they call it democracy. And that democracy doesn't mean a representative body. It doesn't mean a parliament or a congress or anything like that. It means that the people collectively, in this case, male citizens, decide the law together. Now, another thing that they invented was theatre. And in particular, this form of tragedy. And there's a link between the two things, democracy and, and theatre. And I mean, a physical link in the sense in which the, the first theatre in the, in the world, the theatre of uh, Dionysus on the south slope of the Acropolis in Athens is, you know, is within kind of spitting distance or stone throwing distance from the Pnyx where democracy took place. Right. So these two things are linked. And there are all sorts of ways of linking those two things together, thinking those two things together. But the, the most, maybe the most important thing for me is that theatre and tragedy, we get the presentation of conflicts, of deep ancestral conflicts, where private and public are fundamentally mixed up and muddled. And we're shown people, we're showing these conflicts, people are being torn apart 
by claims to justice or law or whatever. But we're not told what to think. We're not presented with the truth. This is the way things are. So there's a deep, if you like, ontological skepticism at the core of tragedy, a skepticism about the nature of that which is. We just don't know. And that is linked for me and for some others to democracy. Democracy isn't certainty about things. Democracy isn't a knowledge of how things really are. Democracy is a practice of, of speech, a practice of collective decision-making, which is also based on a kind of ambiguity mm -hmm. right? and the acceptance of that ambiguity and the acceptance of the fact that we're not going to be certain about things, which is why democracy has usually been so unpopular amongst philosophers, because they want certainty, they want, um, they want absolutes, they want uh, the ideal. One basis of that ambiguity and that tolerance that are part of democracy, it's about recognizing, it's about that experience of living with other people and understanding, accepting the alienating reality that they may see things in a completely different way from mm -hmm. you, that their basic values, that the things that are most important to you, that you you simply may not be able to convince them of that. Sure, I mean, there's, <laughs> I mean, there's a constant use of, of, of reason in tragedy. Tragedy is obsessed with arguments, but often that, that reason is powerless in the face of force, right. in the face of power and violence. So we see the tragedies are extraordinary examples of, of reasoning, but reasoning isn't as, isn't assumed to be the final word. Reason is often powerless in the face of reason. When when individuals are coming and trying to convince each other of things, they can go back and forth yeah. for centuries, neither really gaining final and the, ground. And, and, like. and the, the, the classical <laughs> Athenians were, were, were fine with that. This was this was. I mean, the most important thing that you could learn in classical Athens was persuasion, persuasive speech. And persuasive speech would be persuasive speech that used reason, used argument. But the people that taught persuasive speech, the people that we call now um, the sophists, and they've also got a really bad press, and the book is in part an attempt to defend the sophists. <laughs> yes. They would teach that every, every argument has a counter-argument. And being able to persuade also means uh, having your position argued against and just getting used to that situation of a situation of argument and counter-argument of assertion and contradiction. That is the, the stuff of life. And also, which go back to what you were yeah, saying before, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's a, another thing that's particularly fascinating with, with ancient tragedy is that if we go back to link it to democracy, democracy was a democracy where government was by the people, the people as male citizens of the city. And classical Athens was a deeply patriarchal society. No doubt about that. And the more that one finds out about it, the mm. more patriarchal it becomes. Yet in theater, it's as if all of the things which democracy has excluded, the role of women, notably, the role of uh, foreigners, immigrants, refugees, asylum seekers, all of those things are being played out right. in the plays themselves. So it's as if theater is that place where the exclusions of democracy are, are negotiated. The first play that we have uh, the first play that we possess, which is by historical accident, is a play called Persians by Aeschylus from 472 BCE. And um, that play, uh, all the actors in that play are Persian. And they right. are in the court of Susa in modern Iran. And we see them lamenting their defeat by the Athenians in the Battle of Salamis. And we see them lament pretty hard. What's going on in tragedy is this constant negotiation with the foreigner, 
Mm. And with the foreigner, not in the case of Persians, but in other plays, the foreigner who's making um, uh, making a claim to to come somewhere else, right? What are the what are the duties of hospitality that the domestic city, the city like Athens, has to to foreigners, to migrants turning up? How is that to be adjudicated? That's another thing which is at the heart of many of these plays. So it's as if the tragedy is kind of the um, I mean, the repressed elements of democracy are being mm. played out in the theater in the most extraordinary way. Do you think that tragedy such as it exists now in television, in film, in song, that the form, whatever it may have evolved into, that it's serving anything like the same functions? Do you see analogs? Yeah, I do. I mean, it, I mean there, are two, there, are, there are two views of this. I mean, one view is that, you know, tragedy was, ancient tragedy was great, and then it died, <laughs> and it is no more. That's a view you can associate with someone like George Steiner. The other view is that tragedy is, yeah, there's something exceptional about ancient Greek tragedy and theatre only seems to really arise powerfully in cultures where there's some kind of transition or negotiation between a world that's falling away and a world that's coming into existence. So this mm. is one argument why theatre is so incredibly powerful in the 16th century in, in England, say, and a little bit earlier in, in Italy. What we see in theatre is the the playing out of a, of, of a world that's a set of norms that's disappearing and a new set of norms that's emerging. So theatre requires, it helps if there are certain fertile social conditions, but I think they appear all over the place. So I think if you're looking at where would you find tragedy in the last hundred years or right now, I think you, you'd look at the new forms that emerge like cinema, TV. I think there are Obviously, there's some there's some bad stuff, but there's some really good <laughs> stuff as well. And there are certain you know directors who, whether consciously or not, are um, working with the same elements that you can find in the Greeks. I think of somebody like um, Paul Thomas Anderson. Mm. I think his movies mm. are deeply tragic in the in the proper sense. That a film that I I quote, I don't mention it because I bury the quotation early in my book is the line from. Magnolia, uh, oh, yeah. Paul Thomas says Magnolia. We might through, we might think we're through with the past, but the past isn't through with us. And in many ways, that's all that tragedy is about. If you think you're through with the past, if you think you can quieten that, you've overcome that, that this is done and dusted, then the past is going to come back and destroy you. Mm. And what you see in a movie like Magnolia is um, four or five different narrative streams which are running in an interconnected way around that question of the relationship between the past and the present. Mm. So I think it's, to that extent, I think so. I think tragedy is uh, something that really good art always does. Bad art, on the whole, tells you what to think. It gives you a message, right? Good art presents you with a series of contradictions which you have to think through and uh, which, which address you in a very direct way and you're left to decide on your own what you take away from it. And that relationship between the past and the present of the actor, mm -hmm. of the you know protagonist, is about the individual trapped in context, trapped yeah. in circumstances, mm -hmm. the, and as you call it, sort of partial agency. The fact yeah. that 
we often think about Greek tragedy, we think about fate. Yeah. And then it seems like this impossibly remote concept, like, mm -hmm. oh, we don't believe in fate anymore or whatever. But in, in reality, it's just about the situation that every single person is in, right? Between yeah. DNA, between the society and culture you're born into, circumstances that occur, and then yeah. your own agency. We, 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 you know, we like to believe that we're autonomous or right. we want to be autonomous and that we're agents in control of ourselves and in control of our actions and can shape our future. That's very nice, but it's often not true. An agency is much more limited and partial than we like to think and it's shaped by forces that constitute us and those forces are linguistic, they're cultural, they're often very heavily familial mm -hmm. and uh, they can mm -hmm. be religious as well. Mm -hmm. And those forces are things that, which you can, you can disavow. You can think, well, this isn't me, I'm something else. But at some point, that past will creep up and uh, can destroy you. So if you go back to the, you know, your grandmother, mm, Selma. Selma, yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> for example, let's give an example. I just came back from three months in, in Athens and I've been trying to figure out what's going on there. And I've been following obsessively um, Brexit coverage because that's, that's where I'm from. And sure. it's, uh, it's very theatrical and entertaining, uh, although very confusing. There were certain problems that we thought we'd solved. Right? Uh, <laughs> that, that was a past that didn't affect the present anymore. We thought we got over that, we're through with that. Petty kinds of uh, nationalism, local identity, you know, the fact of is, is Britain a European country or a non-European country, all that stuff. Or again, this is even a stronger and more, much more disturbing question, uh, something like anti-Semitism, right? Mm. At a certain point, you know, maybe in the, the 90s or maybe as a, as a consequence of the whole historical process that, that took place after the, the Second World War, after the, the Holocaust, the Shoah, maybe people thought that we were through with that. But no, that past is still there. It still haunts the present. So what tragedy can do is to remind us of the entanglements of the past in the present and to give us a kind of a series of sober lessons, mm -hmm. right? which I think it's, um, it's really important to be reminded of that because we can get very uh, deluded about where we think we've, we are and what we think we've achieved and how much we think we've progressed. Yeah, I mean, this question of, is tragedy good for us? Plato wants to tell us in The Republic, absolutely mm -hmm. not. Right. <laughs> the reason is because it's very difficult when we're thinking about kind of what is edifying and what what mm -hmm. do humans need and what will make our lives and societies yeah. better it's very difficult to kind of by nature to put your finger on the effects the beneficial effects if you want to call it that of tragedy yeah yeah because it's because <laughs> it's because tragedy is concerned with truth not with uh, what is good or what is beneficial and right. truth is a much more complicated matter and the, the weird thing about truth is that often it's not often very usually it's best presented in the form of a, a lie or a fiction or a story mm. that somehow it's through that through the intermediary of something which is clearly a fiction that we're able to confront a truth of who we are now for, in my view theater tragedy art they're not like guinness they're not they're not good for you mm -hmm. right that's not what they're about they're about presenting you with the contradictions which constitute your being in the world, who you are and your past. And that's tangled and complex. And what a good play can do is it can 
present that to you in a way that isn't resolved. We'd like the idea that there's a takeaway. What do I go do now? Like, yeah, yeah, we get some, we have some idea of, you know, the way it works. We have some sentimental idea of identification with a heroic figure. And then, you know, we go through, we watch the drama, and then we achieve this thing called, which people like to call catharsis. Right. Right. This kind of um, cleansing of the organism. It's like a, like a theatrical detox. I think that's, um, that's really pernicious. It's, it's wrong historically. And I, I try and show that at enormous length in the book, how we need to suspend ideas of catharsis. But it's also that it doesn't, it doesn't really dignify what we're doing when we're thinking through the experience of, of theatre and thinking through the experience of art. Catharsis kind of lets us off the hook. Catharsis right. with a message kind of lets us off the hook. And we get that all the time, every year with the Oscar ceremonies, with, you know, we're told, well, this is, this play is, well, this, this movie is great because it serves this, 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 or that, the other end. I don't know, think, for example, about a great film, Tarkovsky or something. Is, right. is that good for you? Does that make things better? No, you see, you see something. You, you, you're allowed to watch something and engage with that in, in a sober, clear-minded way. And you're drawn into an experience and you watch it and usually bad things happen. But you're saved direct contact with those bad things. You, you observe them coldly from a distance and then you're and then it ends and you can ponder it think it through that's enough for me and in spite of that different distance it is decidedly not when it works an experience of the cautionary tale of seeing the hero and saying oh well there but for the grace of god go i now i know what not to do that's not it either no no, it's not the, so let's say the, the famous example. I want to come back to what you said about Plato yeah, as well, yeah, because please. the most famous play is Oedipus the King, the most famous ancient play. Yeah. And Oedipus the King um, is, when the play begins, married to his mother, doesn't apparently know it's his mother, and has murdered his father, doesn't realize he's murdered his fa father. And then the play, the unraveling of the play, which is done with an absolute economy of expression in Sophocles' short play, no fat in Oedipus the King at all. We're then shown how Oedipus learns the truth about who he is, that he is a parasite and he's a perpetrator of incest. And does he learn from that experience? Hmm. Well, in a way, yes. In a way, no. The very end of the play, his last plea is, he says, my children, he's got four children with his mother stroke wife. Eteocles and Polynices, they're going to tear each other to pieces in the next Theban plays, fratricide, kill each other. And then the two daughters, Antigone and Ismene, and he says, well, the two boys will be, they can look after themselves, but the two girls, let them, let them stay with me. And Creon, leader of the city, says, you know, you're not master here anymore. Do not think you're master in everything. That time is past. So the, the last lines of the play, he's still trying to assert himself as, mm. a, as a tyrant, as a leader. Now, how that relates to us is the, the sense of, of fate, the sense in which the past shapes the present and limits our agency, limits our capacity for free action, is something which we, we all do in our worst moments, in our moments of rage. So what you find in the plays, some people are very angry in these, in these tragedies. And anger is very interesting because in, in anger, in rage, this is the rage where Oedipus, when he's enraged, he raised, before the play's begun, he raises his arm to strike and he kills his father. 
knowing and right. not knowing it's his father. And at that moment, when the rage is coursing through him, the hand comes down and fate acts through him. And it's, it's like that with us too. When we're involved in a, a rageful argument, say with somebody we're, we're close to, a, a family member, a, a parent, when you lose it with them, when you entirely lose it, what's coursing through you at that point is something like fate. And that fate requires our participation to bring it down on us. In a way, you now sound like Plato in the sense that if only we could master and temper our passions, if only yeah. we could apply reason to take ourselves out of the trap of our own mm -hmm. emotionality and reactivity and whatever, then we need not repeat these lessons. Yeah. So the, 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 the fantasy that the fantasy or the proposition, let's say, that yeah. the, the Plato calls philosophy, a term which he let's say he invents, is that it's a form of government which will be opposed to democracy and opposed to theatre. So for for Plato, he puts this in the mouth of Socrates in almost his last dialogue, The Laws, he calls democracy in Greek a theatrokratia where power is organized by the theater. So democracy is a kind of society of the spectacle where emotions are, are raised by theater and then we watch weak-minded people do act poorly and then we, uh, this is, is kind of a control mechanism for, for Plato. What he wants, what Plato fantasizes about is a society based on laws, the best laws, and those laws would govern that society. And the, per the people that would ensure that those laws were followed are people he calls the guardians. And those guardians right. have to be philosophically trained. And those people, the guardians, basically make sure that the laws are followed and keep people in check. So what Plato imagines as a, uh, the best form of government is a kind of authoritarianism. A legalistic authoritarianism, benevolent dictatorship, as it were. Yeah, a kind of dictatorship. Yeah, a dictatorship of the philosophers. And what has to be <laughs> managed is the uh, the level of the level of emotion, because what what theatre does uh, and what democracy does too is that they inflame Passion. passions, yeah. and these passions can lead us into contradiction with ourselves. They can lead us to sympathise with inappropriate people. They can lead men to act like women. This is a big thing in, mm. in Plato. It mm. effeminizes men. So there's an argument for equality of men and women in Plato, but actually it's an argument which is that men and women can be equal to men as long as the women are really just like the men. So it's <laughs> a kind of strange argument for equality. But we need to get rid of all of that extra emotion, all of that destabilizing affect, and maintain a kind of equanimity of calm and, and control of one's passions. So the the fantasy that drives philosophy is a fantasy of the, the control of passion through, through reason mm. and the control of the people by those people that have best access to reason, namely philosophers. Now, if it were just in Plato, fine, I mean, who cares? But we still, <laughs> we still organize the world as if we, we know what's the case, as if we have some understanding of the way things are. <laughs> and on the basis of the way things are, we can then derive a set of moral consequences. And oh. people do this all the time. So that's, so theatre at least should give us pause before we leap to such certainties. It's very, very hard to lose, uh, to let go of, for me anyway, of the sort of medicinal approach, you know, to basically say, okay, 
Right. Well, you know, then what tragedy does is it reduces all of our certainties to rubble. It humbles us. Mm -hmm. And then from the rubble, while standing in that rubble, we're mm -hmm. in a better position <laughs> to, to then do what? To act better with each other, to make better decisions. You know, I'm like... Well, to have, I mean, the last lines of Oedipus the King are, you know, call no human happy until he's dead until he's passed the final threshold of pain. Mm -hmm. So one thing that tragedy can do is it allows you to kind of acquiesce in the face of your mortality, not to believe mm -hmm. that you can overstep the limits in some uh, heroic, godlike way. But you are... So at the core of tragedy for me is, is an idea of human limitedness, right. human, human limitation. And this is hugely important. We live in a world where there are various mechanisms for having an overblown unlimited sense of what human beings are capable of. And so it's a reminder about limitation. Linked to that is an understanding of ourselves as in terms of our dependence on others, that we are weak, dependent, rational creatures. And those weak, dependent, rational creatures cannot dominate other creatures willy-nilly. They have to have complex understandings of their relations of dependence on, in the case of the plays, the foreigner, the immigrant, the migrant, the, the refugee seeker, and so on and so forth. So that there's a sense in which what tragedy reminds us of is like a modesty of the human condition. So it's uh, humbling. And, it's and humbling, yeah. And, it, and it's also, and the, we, but we don't want to, we really don't want to believe that because <laughs> we want to believe that 10, 20 years, there'll be, you know, casinos on the moon, there'll be, we'll all be in spacecraft, whatever, whatever version of the future that we we buy into, or the AI will. Those delusions have been a kind of endemic to the human condition. Mm. We have things like theater and, and democracy as, as lessons. If you engage in an act of hubris, then there will be a consequence. And still we don't, we never listen. We, we, want, to, we want to be godlike still. <laughs> it's impossible not to see that hubris over and over mm -hmm. showing up in the world currently in our dreams of, you know, some people's dreams anyway, not mine, of transhumanism and mm -hmm. colonizing Mars and yeah. whatever, whatever. But at the same time, there is another, I think, very basic human impulse, which is maybe less ridiculous than mm -hmm. that, to uh, look around, see the circumstances that are going on and want to make things better for ourselves mm -hmm. and for others, right? Yeah. And to say, invent democracy as opposed mm -hmm. to some other you know, yeah. s system. And so I guess what I'm saying, which is probably obvious, is that it seems to me that the two alternatives are not either total humility and abasing ourselves in the dust and, mm -hmm. on the other hand, total arrogance and right. hubris. Sure, sure, sure. That's, that's very important. There's a kind of um, the lesson in limitation and the, the humbling that tragedy offers is linked for me to a, a moral orientation, a moral orientation that is premised upon the idea that we are related to others, and those others are others with whom we have relations of dependence and relations of obligation and responsibility. So the humility is tied, in my mind, to a, a human moral orientation towards others that is um, compassion doesn't quite capture the words, but, but a kind of sympathy, what, what Aristotle calls a philanthropia, mm. like a sympathy with, with others. That's what we get out of it. We right. get a, a more modest idea of what humans, human beings are capable of. 
and also a reminder of what human beings can actually do. Human beings can be open, can try for the best. They can be hospitable. They can open their their houses, their their doors to to strangers when when they turn up and try to and do the best for them. Does that add up into some huge overarching picture? No. It's a much more minimal but important kind of moral orientation that I think comes out of tragedy. I mean the other thing I was thinking about is the is that the experience of tragedy, at least as I understand and know mm-hmm. myself to have experienced it in watching things and listening to things, also brings you kind of face to face with the consequences, the stakes of our actions yeah. in the moment to moment in a way yeah. that we're not usually aware of. Yeah, yeah. And that's very painful because you, you, you realize that you are, one is to some, some extent a, a piece of dirt and that, you know, you've acted. <laughs> what is this quintessence of dust? What is this quintessence <laughs> of dust? That, you know, you, the way I think about tragedy in terms of, you know, my life is that I have acted poorly, selfishly, thoughtlessly in numerous context where I wasn't aware of that at the time. And maybe I acted with what I thought were the best of intentions, the most transparent of intentions. But unwittingly, you ended up causing harm, hurting someone. And that's those are the things that it's very hard to forgive yourself. And you shouldn't necessarily forgive yourself. But I think what you see in, in these plays are dramas where that stuff is played out. And it's often played out at the, um, the hinge between private life and public life, because the the people in the plays, Oedipus and Antigone and the rest, are people who are political figures. They are public figures. They're running the city. And they also have private lives, family lives. And the two things are horribly interconnected. Mm. I think that's how it is with us too, right? It's how it is with us. We have this sort of idea of a private sphere of existence and then our, our public. It's just not like that. We bring all sorts of things back and forth in... in um, in thoughtless ways. And and so I think that what tragedy can do, whether this is the Greeks or Shakespeare, is that it can just allow you to pause or stop for a moment and begin to reflect Mm -hmm. about what you've done, what harm you've caused. You can't necessarily put it right, but you can can try, right? Mm -hmm. So to that extent, it's not... So the choice isn't between a kind of, you know, behaving like a god, Oedipus at the beginning of the play, or having a sort of self-pitying sense of oneself as a piece of dirt, but having a different, slightly different moral orientation towards mm-hmm. the world. And that, that's the kind of strange thing. Why, why do we need art? Why couldn't we just see things as they are? Well, because we don't see things as they are when, we, when they're actually happening. We, we seem to need a story, a tale, a drama, which is, gives us some distance in order to really see who we are and where we are. We have lots of strategies, I think, of kind of, you know, in the real world of kind of bending reality to our own mm-hmm. self-justification, to mm-hmm. ignoring things we don't want to see. And so the, mm-hmm. the artist has to subvert that strategically. I liked what you were saying about the deus ex machina that, was it particularly in Euripides? Yeah, that, particularly yeah, in Euripides. Particularly yeah. in Euripides, it seems to be a like, deliberate strategy of artificiality mm-hmm. in, order, in order to somehow engineer that effect that you're, you're it's, talking about. It's to kind of, you know, you know, it's as if Euripides is saying, you, know, you want reconciliation, you want a happy <laughs> ending, here it is. So he will, <laughs> yeah. there's a, in many ways, maybe the most wonderful play I can think of, of the, the 31 that we have, Orestes by Euripides, which is a, 
a kind of a nightmare drama. People hate it. They'll call it a problem play because they can't figure out what's going on. But everything ends, everything is hurtling towards disaster. Every character is kind of blowing up. And you get to a point where everybody's blowing up. You've got uh, three characters on the roof of the palace about to set fire to it. They've just tried to kill a bunch of people. A huge fight's going to break out, and then the gods appear and say, you, you marry this person, you're going to be with this person, this is going to happen to you, you go off there, and then good night. And it's as if Euripides is saying, you want, you want things to work out? Here's what happens when it works out. He's rubbing our faces in it. And Euripides, for me, is the, you know, he's got the hero of the book. Well, your book is certainly going to send me scurrying back to read a bunch of the ones that I have not read and that there are far too many of those. I, I, you know, I went to drama school many years ago and I read a number, but not yeah. but there are many, many. Yeah, as you point out, there's only, what do you say, 30? 31. One. It's seven not, by they're Sophocles. short. Yeah. It's not hard. Seven <laughs> to, by Sophocles, seven yeah. by Aeschylus. These are all very short yeah. and the rest by Euripides. And you could read the entire canon of Greek tragedy in about less than a month. Mm. And that would be, that would serve you incredibly well, I think. Although you may never be able to rise again from the Job-like rubble that you would end up in after having read them one well, front think, to back. I think, they get, I think they get funnier. I think they get funnier. I think yeah. it's a kind of, you know, I see that the <laughs> contemporary analogs to um, tragedy. I mean, I think about a movie that I, it's a long time since I saw it, but I burn after reading where this happens, this happens, you get these extraordinary characters and then it, and you keep getting this sort of deus ex machina moment where the, in the FBI office and this person killed that. Okay. And then at the end of it, the two FBI guys, they the FBI and they say, well, what did we learn from this? <laughs> and they've got absolutely no idea. <laughs> then the movie ends. You're presented with a complex tableau of interesting human stuff, but the purpose of Art is not moral tutorial. And that, in terms of a kind of a left liberal consensus in, in the developed parts of the world, that is a, that, that's a very challenging view because people think that art is a kind of, this is what you should do. This I think is what it's you hard for the right and the left. Right and the left, yeah. You know, yeah. it's like depending on the rigidity of the attachment to values and to say, okay, well, we have these values and mm -hmm. this thing is threatening them. And Right, and, right. absolutely yeah, right. You've yeah. got to, I mean, to go into a theater properly really is to, for that moment is to just suspend your values, just to let it float for right. a while and watch this thing happening. Watch what's happening to, to Phaedra or Antigone or whoever it is. And it's not happening to you. You're not, you're not going to die. You're going to get, the play's going to end and you're going to go and have a, be able to have a drink and go home. But for the time of being in the play, judgment is suspended and you can be held out there in an experience and that experience is aliveness and by the way i'm going to tell the audience that what you are hearing is the heavens opening yes, up above yeah. us yeah okay the gods pouring sweet rain <laughs> i've lost my train of thought Sorry, actually. Yeah. that's fine okay moving yeah. on so for the audience this is the the second part of the show which we are about to shift into is where the uh, video team, Big Things video team, have picked a couple of surprise conversation starter clips from our video interview archives. Mm -hmm. I have not seen them. Simon here has not seen them. No. And we're going to just watch and see where we go. Okay. So this is, for the audience, this is called The U-Curve of Happiness, Why Old Age is a Time of Psychological Bliss. Uh, it is by Ashton Applewhite, who is a Brooklyn-based activist and writer, and that is all I know. There are lots of 
legitimate reasons to worry about getting older, like getting sick and running out of money, ending up alone. Those fears are legitimate and real. But the thing is, we need to think about how the culture in which we age shapes those experiences. I'm not a Pollyanna about aging. I'm sort of in the both sides of the story business. We hear only the downside, and we hear very little about all the positive aspects of aging, which are that we grow more confident, we grow, um, we grow happier. When I started thinking about all this, uh, my view of old age was unrelievedly grim. And one of the things I stumbled upon really early was the U-curve of happiness. And when I first encountered it, seriously, I thought they must have cornered two 80-year-olds and given them a cookie and said, how are you doing? The U-curve shows that people are happiest at the beginnings and the ends of our lives. That midlife, the famous midlife crisis, is indeed the trough of our satisfaction. And this is true for a couple of reasons. Midlife is the time of life when typically we have maximum family responsibilities. We're supposed to be crushing it in our careers. We may have responsibility for people both older and younger than us. And it's also the time of life where we realize, gee, you know, I may not become a ballerina. I may not uh, hike Mount Everest. And those are sobering reflections that, you know, maybe now there's, you're at a turning point and there's more road behind you than ahead. But something happens as we get older, especially up into our 80s. And it is the exact opposite of, a, of an ageist thought that I started out with. I thought, well, obviously everything about getting older is going to suck. And one of the things that clearly sucks about it is this, is the proximity to death. I envisioned that I literally envisioned the shadow of the Grim Reaper stretching over this sad iron bedstead. The awareness that time is short does not fill people with dread. It doesn't work that way neurologically. That was another, you know, just assumption of mine. The knowledge that time is short helps people live in the moment because they are more conscious about what they want to do with their time and who they want to spend spend it with. Kids live in the moment because they don't they aren't neurologically equipped to do anything else, and olders do it because precisely they are aware that time is short and they want to make the most of the remaining time. It's why the older people are, the less they worry about dying. They don't want to die, and they especially don't want to die in pain, but they don't worry about it, and they think younger people worry too much about both the dying and the getting there. Yeah, I thought of King Lear. I feel like his old age was not quite what she's describing here, but he's he's a sample size of one. <laughs> <laughs> no, Lear, yeah, well, Lear thinks he can kind of go into retirement, you know, stop being king, divide up the kingdom between his three daughters, and then go off with his retinue of a hundred and have a sort of a long party. Doesn't quite work out for him. He thought he could go into the U, the upper end of the U curve of happiness, but then life won't leave him alone, I suppose. Well, yeah, and also... <laughs> You don't, you don't get to be, you can't, you don't get to throw away your, who you are in terms of your relation to your kids, say, for, in the case of Lear, uh, Reagan, Goneril, and Cordelia, and then you demand of them some statement of love. I'll stop being king now, divide the kingdom up, tell mm -hmm. me how much you love me, and then on the basis of that, I'll decide what bit you're going to get. And then Cordelia, who of course does love him, refuses to speak. Why should she speak? Nothing, my lord. And then it all begins to unravel in, in the storm scene in the middle of King Lear. And that's, that's where some, some kind of truth emerges. He comes back a chastened figure. 
you have intrigued me throughout this conversation by writing notes or writing something down. Um, if I may be so intrusive, what kind of things are you writing down? Are these notes about what we're talking about? Oh, or? I just write down words from, you know, things that are said. And then so it just jogs my memory. So that the in the, the clip there was about the proximity to death. I mean, I mean, I don't I mean, what's wrong with clips like that? And yeah. um, which then began with the advert for California psychics. Yes, we should tell the audience the link that I, I was given was to the like public site. And so we, yeah, we immediately got an advertisement for improving your life with California psychics. Right. So the <laughs> idea that there's a, there's a psychic that can intuit, intuit the, the way things really are. I don't believe that. I think that's a terrible thing. But then in the clip itself, <laughs> there were at least three or four references to neurology. Right. right. Neurology shows the science shows, the science shows this. And so we can have kind of crackpot metaphysical views about psychics. People still read astrology columns and all of that. But the new metaphysics is is science. The science shows this. And I don't I don't buy that well, either. In every case, yeah, it's a question of methodology. It's a question mm -hmm. of what were they looking at? Why were they looking at it? What yeah. were they not looking at? And those things are all concealed in this you know, science says the brain does, you know. Yeah, and, and, and the happiness issue is just, it's so stupid. That the, you, know, <laughs> the, you know, the happiest people in the world are the, the Danes, usually on the polls. I, I work with Danes. They're not happy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they, they have. It's also they, like one of the highest rates of alcoholism in the world up yeah. in those countries. And, you know, there's a definite disconnect. The idea, the idea of measurement of happiness. Yeah, yeah. Happiness is something that, that is a, has a quality and can be measured quantitatively is delusional. <laughs> and so I think that I'm, I'm against that. And I'm against, in, in a way, the happiness industry and happiness talk. Sure. And it's when people ask me if I'm happy or not, I always have to step back and think, am I happy? You know, what, what would that mean? You know, it's just, it's a good story, clickbait story, all of that. Anyway, fine. But what I would say is right about what she said is the um, proximity to death, the very clear sense as one gets older, that time is really finite. Yeah. And it is going to come to an end and does change your perspective on everyday events and your relations to those people that you uh, you love and are close to and those people that you just happen to meet and i think it does it does give a different quality to that you know it's spring outside there's blossom on the trees okay that's really nice that happened last year but yeah it might happen next year it probably will but you shouldn't take it for granted that's good the sense in which there's a limited stretch of time is what of course confers significance and meaning on on a life ironically like when i think back you know so i'm 46 years old now i think back to when i was say really? 20, 20. You look a lot younger oh hey i want to say thank you but i'm not sure that's even a good thing like <laughs> but at any rate in america that's a very it's good a thing. very good thing in california especially <laughs> where the psychics are but uh, you know i think back to being 20 20 years old and I think about how at that time I was certainly I was very mm -hmm. aware in the sense of like a fire under one's ass you know that mm -hmm. that time was finite and I should hurry up and do this and that and the other yeah. but on the other hand that kind of awareness of the finitude of life or the the, the way it manifests at that mm -hmm. time made it actually made me actually very blind to much of what was going on yep. around me many yep. of the relationships myself how yep. I was acting what I was mm -hmm. you know was, you're like running running away from and toward you know you know not what you know whereas even at this age uh not you know i'm not yet i guess on the other end of the you or mm -hmm. entirely but i find that like i have a 
different kind of relationship to finitude and a little bit more of what you're talking about in terms of the valuing of of every moment of every interaction of seeing the spring when the spring comes like yeah. i never saw that stuff when i was 20 right right <laughs> i completely agree it was exactly yeah. the same for me when i was um you know reading um heidegger on anxiety and <laughs> kierkegaard and nietzsche in my in my 20s and i was consumed with anxiety i, I still am and it's the, the least <laughs> handsome part of my being for me it's always been a an effort but that anxiety was kind of um was a fear of death but it was a kind of blind pointless fear of death that only had the virtue the only virtue to it was that it got me to work quite hard and to to try and turn that into I remember when I was 25, I'd finished my degree and I was going to do um, starting a PhD. And I remember saying to myself, well, I'm clearly not going to be happy for these reasons, <laughs> physiological, psychological. So therefore, I can, what I should do is try to teach and work with people so that they can do something with this awful anxiety that we feel. I don't think I've done that. <laughs> I don't think I've done that. But And, and, but it, and I think that anxiety is much more kind of raw now there's like there's a there's a kind of raw naked anxiety which is which is rampant in the world i think it's um yeah which isn't even it isn't even so the anxiety would have been a generation ago maybe much more bound up with sexual inadequacy or sexual prohibitions or whatever so the sense in which so much more is out there as so much more is visible and available mm just leaves the anxiety and people are maybe don't know what they're anxious for but they're as anxious as hell and yeah, inhibited as right. hell and it's um it's a strange world and also the weirdest thing about getting older is that you know you you can begin to tell the most extraordinary lies about your past and it it sounds mm. like you're talking about a dickens novel in the 19th century when i say well i used to work in factories for a number of years and that's why i've got these various injuries on my on my body and oh yeah there used to be an industrial sector in, in in england there used to be a manufacturing base remember that there, used to, there was an industrial revolution it was by lies i mean are you talking about sort of like the rewriting of one's own narrative like looking back on the things that actually I happened to you to be, and I integrating try, them in yeah. some fantastical where or some I other. try to be truthful. Yeah. I mean, I I try to be. Tr I just just did a long interview over a period of maybe several weeks, but it was intermittent. But I did it three or four times. Yeah. I kind of you know, what's it like to be a philosopher? And I tried to answer all the questions truthfully, but then I read the thing back when it was all. I hadn't read it as a piece, and thought, Jesus, what a Farago of lies! <laughs> and you kind of just think, well, you know, what well, the sense in which of not really knowing what's going on. Mm. And I think for the longest time, I insisted to myself and I tried to have some sense that I, I could say what was going on, right? I could keep up with things. I was on top of things. I was listening to music. I was, and then at a certain point, I don't know, five years ago, that, that just seems to have fallen apart. I mean, to go back to our discussion of tragedy, if that's not as um, crystal clear a picture as one would like, at least maybe mm -hmm. it's, it's more honest somehow. Yeah, I mean, it's no, <laughs> yeah, it's the effects of the past on the present, the malevolent outcomes of often, of acts that one often intended well, right. things like that, things that people that you've, that I think I've hurt, people that I've uh, left behind, people that I no longer see. I, I regret that much more with the passing of years because there's something, you know, there's incredibly precious times that I, I had with people that for various reasons I've, you know, that that's 
very hard to do. And I, I regret that. I think it's also good to have, you know, there's, there's, there's the Edith Piaf regret re um, approach to the mm -hmm. past, but there's also the opposite, which is that I, I'm, I'm full of regrets. I wish I'd done a whole number of things differently. And, uh, and I'm, I'm not consumed by that in a self piteous sure. way, but I, I keep that in mind so that hopefully I won't act in the same thoughtless ways in the future. Thinking about the Hindu and then Buddhist concept of ahimsa, like, uh, you know, non-harming, there's a sort of moral value of not doing harm. And it seems like the best we can do when we're faced with the amount of harm that we can casually do, when we look back on our own past, when we, mm -hmm. when we see it in other people around us, it's horrifying. And but it seems like the only thing that we can do is hopefully learn to do less harm yeah. unless we want to go live in a monastery somewhere. Well, I did that a month ago, actually, funnily enough. I went to a monastery in um, Mount Athos in north northeastern Greece and spent three days with the, the monks. And it was an extraordinary set of experiences, actually. Hmm. I learned something there. I, learned, I wrote a piece about this for The Times and um, the main thing I was talking about was that I was in church for 13 hours. In the three days I was there, it was a five-hour vigil for the Virgin Mary. It was very intense. Wow. It was all in Greek and lots of chanting, amazing, amazing levels of chanting. But I spent a lot of time with this, this monk whose uh, monk name, his real name was Christos, but his monk name was Ioannikios. And Ioannikios was, um, had been a um, uh, a student at NYU in the late 1970s, Greek, mm. probably from a fairly comfortable family, studied at NYU, um, mechanical engineering, and then did an MA in economics at NYU and got a job at Mobile Oil when that used to be an independent company in New Jersey and was living in Manhattan in the late 70s, early 80s and having a ball. He used to go to Studio 54, hang out, he used to drink too much. And, and then he went to Mount Athos because it's something that Greeks do. And he... Um, met this old old monk. The monk couldn't speak and they sat together in his cell for a period of time and there was something that happened in that encounter that just stayed with him and he went, came back to New York and then was back and forth and after two years later he left everything and then went to join the monastery and that was 37 years ago or something. And I think you describe him, I, I seem to have read that piece, or I think you describe him as one of the happiest, you know, yeah. sort of exuding happiness that you've yeah. rarely seen in other humans. And what, what he, I mean, and he said to me, this was the, towards the end of the, the, we were together a good deal of time in these three days, that he said being a monk is hard. Human beings, men in this case, were made for something else. He said having a family, but desires, whatever. So this practice, this, this, activity that they're engaged in is a way of controlling that, organizing that in order to kind of empty that out so that you can participate in what he described as a, a kind of energy, energeia in Greek, an activity, the practice. And he says that this is particularly the case for me when I'm singing. When I'm singing, mm. then I feel that something is moving through me. Call that the grace of God if you like. What's interesting about it is that there's actually sort of no way of knowing. We can opine and we can observe and whatever, but there's literally no way of knowing what that experience is without having that experience. Right. I mean, I got, I mean, I was like, a, you know, in those three days, I could pressed up against the a window with my nose on the glass, looking, hoping to get some affluence, <laughs> some, some sense of this through to me. But of course, there's a real distance with that. But to, to imagine yourself um, 
within that life is, um, I find that pretty seductive. It's compelling, um, yeah. It's not going to happen probably, right? But, you know. I, never say never. I'm back here in the flesh pits of Manhattan. But, the, but also the question of happiness then is, if we think about it religiously, and I think this is also linked to tragedy, it's a pointless question to, to ask because it's not one that we can answer. The only thing you can right. do is to try and engage in a life in such a way that your actions might allow you to participate in something that causes less harm. Right? Right. That's, that's all you can do. Right. And possibly, if you're really, really lucky, somebody else at the end of that life might say, well, this person was happy or not. It's not for, so, mm. so my happiness is not for me to judge. I don't think, I don't think anybody's happiness is, is for them to judge. It's something which can be said of somebody else. So I can say of Yonikios is the happiest man I ever met. It has to be somebody else's judgment. You never know. I mean, this is going back to the tragic thought of call no man happy until he is dead. The sense in which you cannot review a life until it's, it's over. And then when it's over, you're not around to review it. I'm still Freudian enough to believe that we have no um, real introspective power. We don't really know ourselves. We stumble around more or less blindly most of the time. Other people can, in, if we're lucky, tell us what we're up to. And that could be terrible. <laughs> you, someone could tell you, you are a, a worthless piece of dirt. You acted <laughs> thoughtlessly. How dare you do this? But that has to come from somewhere else. I think the, one of the huge problems philosophically in clips like that and in yeah. the whole world is that the the idea that these are questions, the, the deep questions are questions that we can answer ourselves. Like tragedy, I refuse to tie this podcast up in a neat bow, but um, <laughs> thank you so much for a wonderful conversation, Simon. Thank you, Jason. Thank you very much. And Simon's book is Tragedy, the Greeks and Us and uh, all kinds of stimulating and definitely touches on many of the ideas we touched on here, but goes far beyond. Well worth reading. Thank you very much. It's so interesting and weird how these shows overlap. Coming up in a few weeks, we have one show with an artist who does tragedy in song better than anyone else I know of, and another on the ambiguity of democracy and why its imperfections are a good thing. I swear I didn't plan any of this. If you like what you're hearing on Think Again, come find me at jasongotts.com. You can write me an email, you can join my mailing list. I don't email that frequently, so don't worry. And I'll be back next week with something quite different. French-Iranian journalist Delphine Minoui on life in Tehran, and I hope you can join me.